Father in heaven, as we come to this time in our service of worship, we have sung songs declaring your goodness, declaring the goodness of the gospel. Lord, we've given of our resources. Father, we've already worshipped in many ways. Father, as we seek to worship you through the reading, the teaching, the proclamation of your holy word, we ask, God, that you would speak to us. That, Lord, in spite of a preacher, in spite of a speaker, that, Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of our hearts. That through your holy word, you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us. Lord, we need to hear from you today. And so we pray that you would move among us. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to take them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We will be reading a familiar passage that's typically known as the Great Commission. There'll be several other passages that we read this morning, but this is the anchor of the sermon. And so as it is our primary text, and it is here at the beginning of the sermon, I would ask, as I normally do, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? We'll be looking in Matthew chapter 28. We'll begin in verse 16. Feel free to follow along in your own copy of God's Word. If you don't have your own, borrow one from the back of the, of the pew there in front of you. If you don't own your own copy, feel free to take that one and keep it as our gift to you. But whether you are following along in digital print, in digital or print format, I'll read for us when I've completed. If you are grateful, I will say this is the Word of the Lord. Would you please respond with thanks be to God. Let's look together now. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. The word of the Lord says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning we're going to begin a new sermon series. And instead of planting ourselves in one particular book or one specific passage for the next several weeks, we're actually going to look at what do we believe, what are we trying to become, and how do we build. So if you'll notice, on the front of that bulletin, uh, something that we often look right past, I say it often here, we've, we've preached sermon series where we've given vague ideas about this, but what you find on the front cover of your bulletin is the mission statement of Bethany Baptist Church. We exist, our very existence is to glorify God. The whole reason that we exist as a church is to glorify God. And so the way that we seek to do that is by believing in the Lord Jesus, becoming his disciples, and building his kingdom. That is our mission as a church. 
But oftentimes it gets confusing when you get into the normal rhythm of life, the normal routines. You can often overlook that front page of the bulletin as just filler space. And maybe those three words, believe, become, build, are not even in your mind or in your thought process when you think of Bethany. But those words are intentional because we find those words in Scripture. And so what we're going to look at is the Great Commission. Then we're going to look at what it is that we believe. And then we'll spend the next six weeks talking about how do we become disciples of Jesus? How do we become more like Jesus as a church? And then lastly, we'll look at how do we build his kingdom. And so that's where we're going for the next eight weeks. So I want us to start off in this passage, and I want us to pay very close attention there in verses 16, 17, and then the beginning of 18. It's something very interesting to me that Jesus has died on a cross, and most everyone that it is speaking of in this passage, the 11 disciples and many others are all gathered together from what we know in the account in Acts. There's a bunch of people that are gathered together to watch as Jesus ascends into heaven. And so as he's there, there are people that it says very plainly. There, the 11 are there. There's more there that we know about due to Acts. But it says that they worshipped him, but some doubted. And before we get into anything else that we believe, I just want you and I to take a moment to notice that even people who saw Jesus die, who saw him nailed to a cross, raised up on that cross, watched him suffocate in agony for hours, or were very well aware that he died. If we're following Matthew's account, it got dark for three hours randomly in the middle of the day, and then Random other dead people started to rise up out of the grave. It's as if you buried your Uncle Martin the other day, and then all of a sudden, hey, Marty, how you doing? It's, it's nice to, wait a minute, Uncle Martin, we just, we just buried you a week or so ago. I, I don't understand at all how all of that worked, but that's what Matthew tells us happened. I know it to be true that Jesus dies and other people were raised from the dead. I don't know if it was for the afternoon. I don't know if they lived for a bunch more years and then had to die again. I have no idea. But all of these people gathered together watching Jesus as he's about to ascend experienced all of that. They saw all of it. And then three days later, especially these 11, they went to the tomb, which was empty. They saw angels appear to them in white they saw that there was no one there in the grave. And then Jesus himself appears to these disciples. He lets them touch his hands. He lets them feel his side where they stabbed him with a spear. And yet, this group of people, if ever there was a group of people that should never have a doubt, it's this group of people. And yet, some of them doubted. Maybe I'm on some kind of weird I don't know, maybe I drank something weird. Maybe, maybe I've had something that my food didn't settle right, and I'm just imagining all of these things. Maybe they told themselves. I don't know what the substance of their doubts were, but they're looking at the risen Lord Jesus, who they saw die, and some of them doubted. When it comes to believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to understand full and well that there may be days that you have doubts. 
There may be days that you wonder, God, are you really there? Jesus, is all of this stuff for real? Is all of this stuff serious? Can I really bank on the Bible? Can I really trust what the Bible says? And I want us to understand and comprehend together that even the most committed of his disciples who saw him die, who saw him rise, who saw him ascend, experienced some doubts. It's what we do in response to those doubts that determines whether or not we believe. If we experience doubts and we abandon our faith, well then, maybe we never believed in the first place. If we experience doubts and we press forward anyway, then maybe we really were believing the whole time. And we shouldn't be quite so hard on ourselves. These people doubted. And yet these are some of the very people who are responsible for writing the very scripture we're reading where they're honest and transparent enough to admit to us that they had doubts. Sometimes I think as Christians we get off to ourselves and we look at other Christian lives and we see the version of Christianity that we want to see. We look at like we're looking at Instagram or at Facebook. How many people on Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat put the picture where the kids are running everywhere, right? How many of us put the pictures up there where the little daughter has accidentally raised her dress up over her head? Nobody posts that picture. We pretend that that picture did not happen. When everybody blinked at the wrong time and half the people's eyes are closed or somebody's looking the other way. I love my daughter with all my heart, but when you tell her that we're going to take a picture, her pupils will not look at the camera. You can put a birdie on top of the camera. You can wave. You can do jumping jacks. You can do anything. She'll have everything geared towards the camera and smile and look over there and look over there. And look up there and look at that. It takes us 17 pictures before we get one where Lily is looking at the camera. Then that's the one that we post, right? That's the one that we put out there. And people could be deceived into thinking that your family has no problems. That look how happy this family or that family is. Look how happy that person is. Look, they have no troubles in their life. The same thing can happen in our Christian walk. We can walk around and be in the midst of struggling and fighting through doubts and look around and see everybody else around us as though the Shekinah glory of God is shining through their eyeballs. We can look and see everything about their life is just fine. There's never a day they've had a doubt. They must be the most faithful Christians on earth. I must not even be a Christian because I'm so doubtful and they're so faithful. That's just not true. The same doubts that you struggle with sometimes, somebody else across this auditorium struggles with also. Maybe not the exact same doubts, but different doubts. People could see the risen Lord Jesus and still struggle through their doubts and still remain faithful. Just because you have moments of doubt does not mean that you are not a true believer. Just because you have moments of doubt does not mean that Jesus has forgotten you. Because in this same passage at the end of verse 20, he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He knows that they have doubts. And so as he is ascending, he says, Even though you have doubts, don't fear because I'm going to be with you. So there's the first part of believing. Sometimes belief is mixed with doubt. As long as you hold fast to what you believe, as long as you continue to struggle forward, as long as we remember that Jesus is with us even in the moments of doubt, 
We're going to be okay. And you're not alone. Somebody else has doubts too. Somebody else is struggling also. The next thing is the the command that he gives us. This is part of how we believe. This is part of what we believe. He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want us to understand that I've, I've, I've preached on this before. Maybe you remember it. There's only one imperative, only one command in that sentence. When it says, go, therefore, and make disciples, almost every translation in English that you can find is going to say, go, therefore. And that might make you think that the word go is an imperative, that it is the command, that there's a twofold command in this verse. Go, make disciples. That, that's not the case. There's only one verb that is an imperative commanding verb. It is make disciples. Make disciples. In your going, as you're baptizing, as you're teaching, make disciples. Or you can flip that. Make disciples as you're going, as you're baptizing, as you're teaching. Those three words are participles. Going, baptizing, teaching to observe. Those are the helping verbs, the participles in the sentence. What we're commanded to do is to make disciples. And you might be thinking, well, how does that connect to being a believer? Well, I'm I'm glad that you asked. It connects to being a believer because of what a disciple is. The Greek word for disciple is mathetes. Mathetes means student, learner, follower. If we're a disciple of Jesus... It means we are a lifelong learner. It means we are a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. That's why the belief part is tied to the disciple part. Because we have to learn constantly. There's never a time where we outgrow the gospel. You you may think this morning, you know, it's a new year. I've been following the Lord for a long time. I'm very well acquainted with what we believe and what the gospel is. But I want us to understand You don't graduate from elementary school and get out of the gospel to deeper theology. The gospel is all we need. The gospel is as deep as it gets and it's as shallow as it gets all at the same time. And we can spend the rest of our lives trying to plumb the depths of the gospel and we'll never reach the bottom. We'll never fully understand. That's why being a follower of Jesus is saying, I'm going to sign up to be a student. I'm going to sign up to be a learner, to be a follower of Jesus for the rest of my life. And what we've done in our culture repeatedly over and over again is we push this belief, this believing to like a decision, to like one brief decision. And sometimes we'll even go to conferences and concerts and things where they'll lower the lights and they'll put out a lot of smoke and there'll be fog all across the floor and there'll be special lights shining around and a preacher will stand up there and he'll, after the song has reached the height of the song, they'll keep the pad going so that there's a little bit of music kind of swaying in the background, you know. There's, and then the preacher says, if you're here this morning, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to pray with me. And they Hammer and hammer and hammer until finally you come to this emotional decision. You decide one time, okay, yes, I'm going to go down. Somebody grabs you by the hand. They take you out of the room. They say a lot of stuff really fast to you. And then you don't really know what happened. And I guess I'm a Christian now. 
We have no follow-up. We baptize somebody and we think that's a finish line. That's where following really starts. We committed enough to be baptized. Now we are a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. It's not about just one brief decision and then go do whatever you want with your life. There's not some magic prayer that any of us could say that all of a sudden just saves us and now we don't need to do anything else the rest of our lives. That's not how the gospel works. Grace is free and available to anyone. But Jesus says, count the cost of being my disciple. Look with me as we turn to Matthew 16. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we're going to read verses 24, 25, and 26. As Jesus speaks about this process of believing, there's never a time on Jesus' lip where it's a one-time brief decision. Jesus had this uncanny habit of when crowds followed him, he made the gospel harder to digest. He spoke the gospel in a way that was harder to chew and to swallow and to take into yourself and go, oh, sure, I want to follow this guy. When people were crowded around him in John chapter 6, after he had fed all of them and, and thousands of people received food, they come back to him and he's like, man, you, you don't really care about actually believing you're just hungry again if you really want to follow me you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood and it said that that was too hard for many of them in john chapter 6 many departed from him but he had thousands of people thronged about him that's the time when you say oh no no all you gotta do is say a prayer all you gotta do is say a prayer all you gotta do is go to church one time all you gotta do is go to that conference one time and then that's it it's over you you believe you're there no this is how Jesus describes Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Does that sound like one easy prayer? Does that sound like all I got to do is confess my sins? ABCs, like we teach in the, uh, in the vacation Bible school. There's nothing wrong with the ABCs, but if that's where we've stopped, if we believed back in vacation Bible school and said an ABC prayer, and then we didn't darken the door of a church again until we decided that we wanted our kids to be in church, there's a problem. That's not taking up our cross to follow Jesus. That's I want my kids raised in church. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad that people come to church to hear the gospel, but it's about believing and following for the rest of our lives. Not saying one prayer in vacation Bible school and then never thinking about it again until your parents want their grandchildren in church. So all of a sudden, eh, we probably better go to church. But you no more believe than you did when you were six years old. You said a prayer and thought that's all it took. That's our culture. And if that's you, then I want us to understand God has a deeper call for us than that. It's taking up our cross, following him. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will gain it. Look with me in Luke 14. He continues the same, same thought process in Luke chapter 14. And this is even in a time when crowds were all around him. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Luke chapter 14. 
beginning in verse 25. I know some of you are still turning. I'm going to go ahead and start. It's there on the screen if you want to follow. Now great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds accompanied him. That's a lot of people. That's the mega church. Jesus was ready to start a mega church, and this is his response. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, my follower, my learner, my student. Sign me up, right? Woohoo! Is that how you build a mega church? I hate my mom, Jesus. I'm I'm right here with you. Woo, man, I hate my brother. Yeah, come on. I woohoo. No. People left him after this. What he means in this passage is your mom and your dad and your wife and your brother and your sister and your children, nobody can take first place over Jesus. He demands to be number one in our lives, even above those that are closest to us. Does that sound like easy believism? Or does it sound like lifelong commitment, a lifelong learner? This is what we believe, that we will follow Jesus because of how great he is, because it is worth it. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Sometimes we forget in our urgency to make sure people know the gospel, that we dumb it down. And we make it so easy and so approachable, we forget Verse 33, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We renounce our hopes and our dreams. We renounce our family and our friends, and we follow Christ. Does that mean it has to be that way for the rest of your life? No, but it means we choose Christ over them. We choose Christ even if they oppose us. Some parents don't like it, but even when I sit down with our vacation Bible schoolers, I say, what if your parents were furious with you for deciding to trust in Jesus? Would you still want to follow Jesus? I remember asking my Luke, what if mommy and daddy did not let you live here anymore if you decide to follow Jesus? The little boy looked at me and he said, I guess I'm going to have to go live with Mimi and granddad because I am with Jesus. Folks, that's the kind of lifelong commitment we have to have. And we have to maintain that following him all of our lives. But he's worth that. It's not as though we're sacrificing in order to do that. We are in a terrible situation. And it is so much joy that comes from believing in and following Jesus and holding him the highest in our lives. We are willing to do this because of what the Bible tells us. We've got a serious problem. 
We've got a serious sin problem. Our lives are miserable without Christ. Our lives are hopeless without Christ. Our lives are without peace without Christ. One of the most famous passages, we studied it last week in Sunday school. John chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Just time out right there. Jesus did not come and tell us we have to renounce all that we have to follow him so that we would be condemned. He came and told us that because we were already condemned. He did not come to condemn us. He came because we were already condemned in our sin. Every one of us has rebelled. Every one of us has looked at God and acted as a traitor and turned our back on him and decided we can be God in and of ourselves. And so Jesus calls us to follow him because he came and died for us because we stood condemned. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Then we move to Romans chapter 10. This passage right here is one of those passages where some people throughout history, some of us, have gone wrong. This is where some of our easy believism comes from. This is a declaration of the truth of how to be saved, of what to believe in. But don't misunderstand what Paul is telling us as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. What does that mean? Does that mean I know it? I recognize Jesus definitely was a real person, definitely existed in history. I, I understand he died on the cross, and I know in my mind that he was raised from the dead. I, I believe that. I think that that is true. Is that what is meant by the word believe? Not on your life. That's what we have dumbed the word believe down to mean. But believe is something deeper it's something that we know in the core of who we are. It's not an intellectual assent to understand that God moved through Jesus, his son, and raised Jesus from the dead, and that's how we get life. It's great to have that intellect, but if we know those facts and it does nothing to our lives, it affects us in no way day to day, then we have missed the boat. Because Jesus calls us to be disciples, to be followers. To follow him with all of our life, with everything we have. To put him above our mom and our dad and our husband and our wife and our kids. To put him above all else. To believe that he's worth it and arrange our lives according to that truth. That's when you believe something. When you arrange your life according to the fact that that's true, that's when you believe. If I tell you that it's going to rain outside today, 
How do I know whether you believe me or not? If I tell you it's going to rain outside today, you probably should get your umbrella. And you go home and you get your umbrella and carry it with you the rest of the day. I think you believe me. If I tell you it's going to rain outside and you go about the rest of your day and you could not care less about a raincoat or an umbrella or anything of that nature. And you just went about your life. Well, you probably heard the information. You probably processed what I said, but you didn't believe it to be true. If I told you it was going to be cold, the same thing applies. If you ask your Alexa or Amazon device or your Google or Siri or whoever you check the weather with, and they tell you it's going to be frigid cold outside, and you go and get warmer clothes, you believed what that machine told you. Now, you may get outside and you may sweat, but you believed it, so you dressed warmly. The same thing is true with Scripture. If we believe it, something changes. If we believe it, we become lifelong students, lifelong learners, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. Paul, in that same letter, that same letter, Romans 10, 9 through 12, we just read. Then we move two chapters down to Romans 12. In light of everything that he's said, in light of it all, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Not even Paul, not even the man who wrote, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. He moves on to chapter 12 to say the rest of your life, the outworking of that looks like presenting our bodies to Jesus as living sacrifices. That's what we believe. That's what salvation looks like. It's how Jason has put it to me so many times that I just love. Jason Gunter is not with us this morning. He had the flu. We're very grateful for all those who filled in for him. But he has always broken it down that when we believe in our heart, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Then we spend the rest of our lives being freed from the power of sin until we die and are reunited with Christ or Christ comes back. And then we are freed from the presence of sin. Salvation is a lifelong process. The moment of belief is important. I'm not saying we should never have a time of decision, but I am saying we've put too much emphasis on it. We believe that if you say that prayer, that's all it takes. When that's the starting line, the rest of our lives is being freed from the power of sin, is following the Lord Jesus Christ, taking up our cross and following him no matter the cost, no matter what that means, no matter what sacrifices we have to make. Even if we have to sell everything that we own and move across the world, even if we have to adopt children from all over the world or take in children in foster care, even if we have to live lives that are crazy upside down in accordance with all the American dream and people look at us like we're absolutely absurd and insane, we're willing to bear that because it's worth it to follow Jesus. And I wonder, is that what you and I believe? Is that what you believe? Is that what you're teaching your children to believe? Is that what's taught in your household? As we follow him, as we become lifelong learners, there's things that should be present in our lives. I want us to look at a few of those things just briefly. We see in Galatians, obviously, Galatians chapter 5. 
Galatians chapter 5, if you've been following Jesus, if you believe in him, here's the things that should come out of your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we believe in the Lord Jesus, the process of becoming means these things show up much more in our lives. But here's what we're going to look at for the next seven weeks after today. The practical outworking of these fruit of the Spirit. I've got it written out for us, okay? I borrowed this from a pastor friend who's a lot better and more articulate than me, more concise at putting these things together. There's tons of lists. You can find a ton of pastors who have a ton of lists. But in true Southern Baptist fashion, you've got to have alliteration. Now, it doesn't break down to three, but we've got another very biblical number. We've got seven. This is what I want us to begin to incorporate into our mind, into our mentality, as we live out the gospel, as we are devoted to Jesus, as we count the cost, take up our cross and follow him. If we are growing in Christ and we are disciples, these are the things we should see in our lives. We should be members. People who follow Jesus are members of a local church. There is no context in Scripture for somebody who follows Jesus and claims to be a Christian out on an island by themselves. Even if you are some sort of Christian who is an anarchist, find a group of other anarchist Christians and have an anarchist church where you don't believe in government and you're revolutionary and everything, but you're a community. Everything in the Bible is in the context of community when it comes to faith. We are to be members. We are to be magnifiers. We are to make a big deal about God, about Jesus We are to magnify the name of the Lord. We are to be ministers. We are to serve others. We should sacrifice for one another. We are to be ministers. We're to be members. We're to be magnifiers. We're to be ministers. We are to be maturing. That means that as we grow, we get closer to the Lord and we are more mature in our faith. If you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years... If you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years and your spiritual life looks the same as it did 30 years ago and you act the same as you did 30 years ago, that's not maturation. That's not maturing in the Lord. All right? We grow in the Lord. It's part of being a lifelong learner. If we are maturing, if we are a member, if we are magnifying and ministers, then we will be good managers. We'll be good stewards of our time, of our talent, of our resources. We will be good stewards of what God has blessed us with. We will manage our money well. We will manage our time well. We will manage our relationships well. Does it mean we'll do it perfectly? No. But as Christians, people should look to us and go, man, something about them. They've just really got their life together. All of these things are biblical principles, and we're going to spend the next seven weeks showing where they are in Scripture, okay? Be members, be magnifiers, be ministers, be maturing, be managers, be messengers. We're called to give out the message of the gospel, to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That means Andalusia and Heath. That means Covington County, the state of Alabama, United States, and around the world. We're to be messengers. Lastly, we're to be multipliers, which brings us back to where we started. We are to go, therefore, and make disciples. One of the most challenging things is if we're walking in our faith and we're maturing, 
If you sit here this morning and you say, I've heard everything you've said, Pastor, I didn't do that. I didn't pray a simple prayer. I've been following Jesus and I've been growing in the Lord. How many disciples have you made? It's a question that plagues me. Because people who are growing in the Lord, we follow this commission. We go, we make disciples, we multiply. That's the third B. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his virgin birth, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. We believe that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. And because he lives, we know that we can have life. We believe that to be true. Because of that, we become like him. And because we are becoming like him, we build his kingdom, which is making disciples. I don't think it's possible for us to claim to be mature followers of Jesus if we are not in the process of making disciples. If we're going to be a student of Jesus, we're going to help other people be students of Jesus. We're going to flesh that out. We're going to look at that. But you're going to see these seven M's for the next seven weeks. This is going to be built into the DNA of who we are at Bethany. This is what we will strive to attain. As we believe in the Lord Jesus, these are the things we want to become more like him in. Members, magnifiers, ministers, maturing, managers, messengers, multipliers. M7. I didn't come up with it, but a very good pastor friend who's a lot smarter than me did. It's all in Scripture. It's all there. But you can't start becoming these things unless you believe in the gospel. And so this morning, I just want to close with with a simple question. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? This morning, all that stuff that I said about saying a simple prayer, maybe one day when you were much younger, was that you? Did I describe you? When I talked about maybe you're just bringing your family to church because you feel peer pressure to do that. Is that something that you've gotten caught up in? Or do you come to church because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And you've counted the cost. And you want to follow him for the rest of your life, no matter what it costs you. I wonder this morning, have you truly trusted in the gospel? And maybe you're a baptized believer sitting there and you've been walking with the Lord for years. We all need reminders of the gospel. It's the beginning of a new year. It's a great marker. If you've already believed, would you pray in a moment when we have a time to respond? You don't have to come down to the altar if you don't want to. But just pray where you are and ask the Lord to help all of us make our belief in the gospel central to our lives in 2023. We can profess what we think, but we will live what we believe. Let's pray to the Lord that we will live out our beliefs in 2023 and that our beliefs will be centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that because, Jesus, you came and died, we can even speak to you right now. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be able to approach your throne. Lord, help us as we seek to believe in the truth of your gospel, of the good news that though we deserve death and separation from you, you made a way for us to have life and life more abundant. Father, we love you so very much. 
We ask for you to help us to reaffirm our belief in you. And Lord, if there's any here who've never believed in you truly, I ask that you would move upon their heart, that they might decide right now this morning that the rest of their life will be different, that they might begin a true relationship of believing in you and following after the one true risen Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We give this time of response over to you, Lord. Would you move among us? May we respond in obedience. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.